Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago. Today is Monday, January 8th, 2024. So hope everyone is having a great new year so far. Uh, today is another special day, just like last week on January 1st was, uh, because as I predicted using my fail-safe method, uh, Michigan did defeat Alabama in the national semifinal game, and they are going to play in the championship game tonight. I'm happy to report that good friend of the show and recent guest Alex Wellens will be at the game. And if we're lucky, we may be able to get a report from him later. Uh, not tonight, but probably for next week. Um, and we'll get to that game in a few minutes because we go right back to the predicting method and uh, we'll see how it shakes out for Michigan this time around. At any rate, today we are celebrating a show from January 8th, 1978 at the Golden Hall Community Concourse in San Diego, California. Uh, the Grateful Dead were playing there that day. Jerry has laryngitis. Donna filling in for him where she can. Bill Graham's birthday. What can go wrong? Let's dive right into the beginning of the show. Everybody knows Jack Straw. Everybody loves Jack Straw. Uh, it's a classic Grateful Dead opening tune. Sometimes it makes its way into other parts of the first set, almost never into the second set. Um, it was played by the Dead 476 times, making it number 11 on their list of all-time songs played. Uh, first being performed on October 19th, 1971 at the famous show in Minneapolis. Uh, Keith Gauchow's first show with a lot of other breakouts. And it was last played on July 8th, 1995 at Soldier Field in Chicago. Uh, never came out on a studio album, was featured on Europe 72, which is where uh, its fame and popularity really took off. And uh, we, we've talked about Jack Straw a little bit because um, it, it's a Bob Weir tune. And uh, when the song first came out, Bob sang all of the uh, the verses. I just shot the Watchman and... Uh, all those other verses that, that Jerry sang for years and years when he split the singing duties on the song with Bob. And then somewhere in, and I'm sorry, I don't have the notes in front of me again, 73 or 74, last time around we actually mentioned the specific show, and I'll find it. Uh, Jerry stepped up to the mic and he started singing the Jerry parts, Bobby sang the Bobby parts, 
and it was that way forevermore. And this show going down in 1978 uh, would certainly be within that period when it was the Jerry-Bobby tandem. But as we mentioned at the outset, Jerry had laryngitis. So Jerry was not to be singing on this version of Jack Straw, unfortunately. And instead, uh, we had Donna Jean filling in. Now, Donna Jean did not sing the parts that Jerry would normally sing, uh, like the, the I Just Shot the Watchman or anything like that. Um, but what we did get was a lot of Bobby singing, some very nice Donna in the backgrounds, and some absolutely blazing guitar from Garcia. And um, what you're going to find about this show, and one of the things that really directed me to this show, because quite frankly, there was also a show on this date in 1966, um, one of the uh, first acid tests where the Grateful Dead played as the house band as the Grateful Dead and not as the Warlocks or any other combination that they played under. Um, and the recording of the show is fantastic. They, there's only about six or seven songs uh, where they really get through the whole thing. And uh, there's all sorts of great banter from the microphones and you know just a room full of people just dosed out of their minds. Uh, and everybody's having a great time. The band members aren't, you know, really taking it all that seriously. They count down into one of the songs and Billy has a big case of the giggles and can't get the beat going on the drum. Uh, just wild stuff. And it was really a lot of fun. We would have gone straight to that. But unfortunately, uh, the recordings from the time being what they are, although you can hear the music perfectly, you can't really hear very many of the lyrics and it's hard to pick up a lot of the sounds. So uh, we'll see if technology doesn't help improve that for future years. But today we're going with this show from uh, San Diego. Um, and one of the other strange things about it is, is that the Grateful Dead did not play a lot of shows in the month of January. In fact, it might be one of the months with the fewest number of shows played. November was always another big sh month uh, for not having a lot of Grateful Dead, Dead, Dead shows scheduled. Uh, you know, during this period of time, you might catch them on the West Coast for Chinese New Year's, depending on when that fell. Uh, Mardi Gras, obviously, coming up in February. Uh, but they might pop in for a couple of shows at the uh, Civic Center, the Bill Graham Center, um, sometimes over in Berkeley, sometimes over in Oakland, a number of different places where they might pop in, but no regular touring in the month of January for the most part. They did the New Year's shows and then uh, took a little time off, although if Garcia, uh, he was always still touring around with the Jerry Garcia band, so it wasn't like he ever really took time off, but um, you know what I'm saying. But uh, here we go on a show from January 8th, and uh, they come out, they open with Jack Straw. We love it. It's a great tune, uh, lots of other fun things, and, and on the rest of these tunes that we're going to play, uh, a, again, you'll note that they're almost all Bobby tunes because Jerry's not singing. And B, that Jerry's not singing. And uh, you have a real chance to focus in on Bobby. Uh, you get a little bit of Donna in the background on one of the later tunes. Phil even pops in for a couple of seconds. Uh, and you can hear him bellowing in the background. Uh, and it's all just a lot of good fun. And uh, Jerry would come back a couple of nights later uh, with a scratchy voice, but with a voice nonetheless. Uh, but with that being said, let's dive in. Uh, to another song from this show, and uh, this is one of my uh, one of my more favorite tunes, uh, Bobby combination tunes that just never got played all that much after I started seeing them. Uh, but let's go ahead and listen to it for a minute. Uh, nice uh, lazy lightning transition into supplication, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. 
So according to David Dodd, uh, who's done a lot of writing on the Grateful Dead and uh, their songs and some of the meanings of the lyrics from their songs, Lazy Lightning and Supplication uh, were recorded as a connected pair on the Kingfish album uh, with Bob Weir as a member of the band. Uh, John Barlow wrote that he wrote the song in Mill Valley, California, in October 75. The two tracks opened the Kingfish album, which was released in March 1976. Kingfish was just another side project that Bobby worked, uh, played in for a while in the 70s. Um, not one of his uh, 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 more long-lasting uh, associations by any means, but still, you know, if you're a Bobby fan and you like to hear Bobby playing uh, with different musicians and different combinations, uh, Kingfish is a nice collection, uh, a nice addition to anyone's collection of Bob Weir-related uh, music, Grateful Dead and otherwise. Um so the Grateful Dead first played the pair in concert on June 3rd, 1976 at the Paramount Theater in Portland, Oregon. That show also included the first performances of Might As Well, Samson and Delilah, and The Wheel. So we're getting a lot of these types of shows. Uh, 1971 we talked about, and I was showing 76, uh, when it seems like if you're there on the right night, although it may not feel like it at the time because the boys are coming out and dumping a whole bunch of brand new songs that you've never heard, uh, but certainly, you know, in terms of Grateful Dead history, uh, you know, and were you there type of stuff. That's really cool. Um, you know, and who knows, maybe some of these tunes are so good on first hearing uh, that the deadheads uh, want to come back again and again, which is what they all did anyway. But uh, uh, those are all great tunes that, that were paired up with it that night um, and uh, a lot of fun. So, you know, that's when they first played it. Uh, was always followed in concert by Supplication, The Lazy Lightning. And the final performance of the two songs together took place on October 31st, 1984, Halloween, at the Berkeley Community Center in Berkeley, California. Supplication was played by itself, according to Dead Bass X, uh, on a few occasions, one subsequent, although it was also played as an instrumental jam more frequently over the years. The final supplication was played 597 shows after the last Lazy Lightning supplication, on May 22nd, 1993, at the Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California. Uh, interestingly, Supplication was played one other time, separate from Lazy Lightning, on September 24th, 1976, when it was sandwiched in the middle of playing in the band. Uh, a very strong case could be made that Supplication is no more a separate song from Lazy Lightning than is uh, Sunshine Daydream from Sugar Magnolia. Uh, it's a coda carrying forward the same themes, same themes only the, only the form of the verse has changed. Now, I didn't get a whole lot of Lazy Lightning supplication because, uh, as we heard, it was played into 1984 uh, by Halloween, but then it was dropped after that. And uh, I did hear it uh, one time in 83 in Rochester and one or two other times, maybe once in um, uh, Morgantown, West Virginia. I'd have to double check the set list on that. Uh, but it was always a fun combination. And um, my, my, my good buddy Tommy and I loved it, and we always had a little bit of fun with it and joking around and, uh, uh, you know, just sophomore type of humor for college kids listening to The Grateful Dead. Uh, but, you know, it was one of those songs that if they started playing, we would just give each other a knowing wink and uh, move right along with our day. Um, but it's nice how the dead kind of have these songs that go together because then when they do play one without the other, it's news, right? Like uh, the fire on the mountain that gets played at the pyramids in Egypt um, uh, without the uh, Scarlet Begonias leading into it. It may be one of my favorite fire on the mountains of all time. 
Um, you know, it's not uncommon for the dead on those occasions when they choose to do it, to open up a set or even a show with Sugar Magnolia and save the Sunshine Daydream, typically for the very end of the second set uh, to kind of, you know, complete their Sugar Magnolia Sunshine Daydream show sandwich, as it were. Um, but uh, we didn't really have a whole lot of that. It was always pretty much lazy lightning into supplication uh, unless one was not going to proceed or follow the other uh, like they talk about, like uh, David Dodd talked about uh, with the supplication sandwich in the middle of playing in the band from the main version of it over to the play and reprise. So uh, Lazy Lightning was played a total of 111 times. Supplication was played a total of 123 times. Um, so uh, that's a few more extra than what David Dodd told us about, but I think he was just highlighting some of the bigger examples of when they weren't played together. Uh, but nevertheless, um, after 1984, they were no more, and uh, the Deadheads were all the worse for it because we really lost out on a great musical number that was always a lot of fun, would almost always show up near the end of the first set and uh, was just, uh, you know, a great dance tune. And, uh, um, you know, if you were in the right frame of mind that time, a great time for intercontemplation and uh, or inner contemplation, I should say, um, and, uh, you know, taking stock of the space around you and all your brothers and sisters of deadhead of the deadhead world, uh, out there dancing with you and, uh, just really making it, uh, a special time and, uh, lazy lightning and supplication were certainly part of that. Uh, we're certainly part of that celebration. No question about it. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot going on on the music world right now. Uh, everybody did their New Year's shows. Uh, now we're in the time of year when everybody starts planning to go down to Mexico. There's going to be another big deadhead-type celebration uh, down in Mexico, I think, later this month or maybe at the beginning of February uh, with a lot of acts that aren't dead and co. Um, and, hey, look, Mexico's a beautiful place to be in the winter, and if you got fun people down there who are going to be uh, singing and uh, having a good time with you, um, why not? That's a great way to go. And uh, they'll be doing that. I think Fish, actually, I don't know if Fish is doing another one of their playing in the sand kind of uh, things this year because they got so much going on with the Sphere and Fish Fest and uh, all the other stuff that they do on an annual basis. Um, but, you know, the, the Jam Cruises are heading out. And uh, I don't know if good buddy Kevin is going on one this year, even though he managed to snake his way onto one last year and still got out for two shows for New Year's at Madison Square Garden, my all-time hero. Uh, for a married man with young kids, uh, he has exceptional skills and coordination uh, in attending these shows and uh, filling me in on uh, all the fun uh, fun details that I might have missed if I was not able to make it myself. So always good to have somebody like that who can, uh, who can bring you up to speed with what was going on. And uh, he's certainly the man for that. Um, otherwise, you know, uh, I find this to be a good time of year when I go back and I lean heavily into my Dave's picks and Dick's picks and box sets and just kind of start pulling out random dead stuff that I haven't listened to in a while and uh, starting to go through it. And it's always great because if it's, if it's a show or an album or anything that I've listened to before, as soon as I put it on, I'm instantly taken back into it. I know what I'm listening to. I'm very excited about it. And my first thought is why the hell aren't I doing this more often than I'm actually doing it, which is still pretty much a lot. Um, you know, for new year's this year, uh, had an agreement with the wife that uh, although we could play the uh, Farewell to Winterland 78-79 countdown with 
uh, Bill Graham coming in on the um, uh, giant lit joint and uh, the fun countdown. And then a few songs after that, just because to me, that's one of the all time great uh, New Year's introductions that the dead did over the years into Sugar Mag, not uh, holding off the Sunshine Daydream then until later, followed by a awesome Scarlet Fire. Uh, many people think it's one of the best ever, and I'm in no position to argue with that. It is a great Scarlet Fire, and uh, it, it's, it's always fun. But we, we, we had to work a lot of other stuff in, and we did, and it was nice. Uh, 10,000 Maniacs, a little Dire Straits, some Joni Mitchell, lots of good stuff out there to really be able to uh, uh, sink our teeth into for a little bit later in the evening. Uh, playing the Fish Animals album, which I've gotten, not Fish, excuse me, Pink Floyd um, Animals album, uh, which I've gotten back into big time since good buddy Rob took me to see Les Claypool and his Fog Brigade, Frog, Frog Brigade, easy to say, huh? Uh, and in the midst of their show, they did a complete cover of uh, Pink Floyd's Animals, and I was so enamored of it that I've been back listening to the album a lot. And I find that at dinner parties that go late into the evening after everyone's had a couple of drinks or a couple of tokes or a couple of both or whatever else they might be doing, it makes for uh, interesting background music. Not too loud to drown out the conversation, uh, but just enough that everybody can hear it. And if you want to focus in on it for a minute, you know what it is and uh, you can really get a lot out of it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, uh, all good fun. Uh, we also have a couple of birthdays uh, that I'd like to give some shout outs to today. Actually, January 8th is Bill Graham's birthday. Uh, Bill, unfortunately, is no longer with us, um, but uh, uh, we can't forget that he's the guy who, uh, you know, kind of stirred the drink, if you will, on the whole jam band scene and, uh, you know, really created it so much of it out there with his Fillmore and Fillmore East and Fillmore West and all the other venues, Winterland, that that he owned and managed and ran and all the shows that he produced up and down the West coast and even some on the East coast for a while. Um, and, and he's so much responsible for the whole scene with the grateful dead and encouraging the deadheads and the taping and everything that went along with it, that uh, it almost doesn't seem right or justified to uh, honor him with his uh, band given name of uncle Bobo. So instead, how about if we just give a birthday shout out and a quick uh, thought of memory to Bill Graham and uh, we still miss you, Bill. Uh, there's so many of us that never really got to know you, but uh, you know, you're forever memorialized in so much that's been written about that scene and that time. And especially within the annals of the grateful dead and uh, you know, everything about them that, that you opened the door for and uh, allowed them to become who they become. So happy birthday, shout out to Bill Graham. Uh, also just a couple of quick uh, personal ones, cool cousin Brent and my lovely niece Lily both turned uh, their respective ages just a couple of days ago. And uh, my brother Stephen in St. Louis in a couple of days is having a birthday. So really hope that everyone in uh, January has great birthdays. Uh, everyone has a great year. Uh, there's so much good music that uh, is out there and that will be coming out there over the next uh, coming year that uh, you got to go see it. You got to make the effort to see it. That's where good buddy Alex Wellens comes in because he's always leading the charge. And once he's out there doing it, it's kind of hard not to follow in his footsteps, even though I will not be following in his footsteps of going to Houston for the football game. But my excuse is I'm going to Atlanta to watch with my granddaughter. So, you know, anyone who doesn't like that can go suck eggs. At least that's what I'm saying. And I'm sticking to that story. Back to our show. And now we start to get into a part of it where things really heat up on the musical front 
uh, into the second set, past the first couple of opening tunes, and we get to a uh, uh, an estimated profit that uh, I think is one of the best I've heard uh, in a long time, if not ever, and certainly one off of uh, live dead recordings. But uh, they they really crank on this and just listen to Jerry go. Estimated Profit is a Weir Barlow tune. It was released on Terrapin Station, which was released on uh, July 27th, 1977, making it the first studio album released by the band after they had returned to live touring from their 1975 hiatus. And again, uh, turning to David Dodd uh, for some background on the song, he tells us that Estimated Profit was first performed by the Grateful Dead on February 26th, 1977, at the Swing Auditorium uh, in San Bernardino, California. And those that have listened to this show know, of course, that that was also uh, the day that the Grateful Dead first performed uh, Terrapin Station. And so uh, they were uh, they were going hard from that album and uh, the Terrapin Station tune, uh, the Estimated Profit. Um, and uh, Estimated Profit became a favorite. It was played by the Dead 390 times uh, over the course of the history of the band was the longest time between performances being no more than 15 15 shows. Mostly it stayed at the every third or fourth show rank. Its final performance was on June 28th, 1995 at the Palace in Auburn Hills, Michigan. Um, And we love that song. In fact, the first time I ever saw The Grateful Dead with good buddy Mike uh, in Ventura County on the beach, uh, it was just a beautiful day. Here I am seeing a quintessential uh, California jam band uh, got some great mushrooms going on, a great crowd. Everybody's doing a good time. And these guys come out and start singing the song that I didn't really know yet and talking about California, California um, on the burning shore. And we're like, you know, 100 yards from the shoreline. It, or it seemed like we were that close. Uh, and that tune really spoke to me at that moment. I'm like, wow, they're singing this song to me. This is a song about the whole California scene. And 
how amazing is this? And uh, we have Blair Jackson quoting Bob Weir discussing the song, saying that according to Weir, uh, he and Barlow wrote the song from the perspective of a crazy messianic zealot, a type which once invariably encounters, one invariably encounters in deadhead crowds now and again. As Weir explains, the basis of it is this guy, I see at nearly every backstage door. There's always some guy who's taken a lot of dope and he's really bug-eyed and he's having some kind of vision. He's got to rave. He's got to deliver. And you can hear Bobby saying that and chuckling right along with him. This is one of those songs, and there are quite a number of them in the Dead's repertoire, in which a not entirely sympathetic character is brought to life and in the course of being brought to life is made more sympathetic. Uh, I've always thought that this was a big, strong suit of their songs, whether in Warfred or Jack Straw, whether in Candyman or Friend of the Devil. Not only is it a recurring trope in the lyrics, but it is a key to understanding the whole body of the songs and perhaps literature generally. So again, quoting David Dodd there, I'm not nearly that um, uh, quotable. And uh, you know, my, my, my opinions of these songs tend to be more along the lines of they really fucking jam and I love listening to them. And you know, everybody can kind of interpret it from there however they want. But I cannot argue with anything that David says about Estimated Profit. Uh, always enjoyed it. And for a long period of time after I started seeing the shows in the mid eighties, uh, the, uh, um, either Scarlet fire or, um, China writer into estimated eyes. So, you know, you're China writer, estimated eyes or China eyes for shorter, just to eliminate everything. Cause we all knew what you meant in between. Uh, and that was always fun. Um, I love eyes of the world and I love it anywhere and anytime they play it as I do estimated profit, but they really do go hand in hand very nicely yeah, with a with a great transition, and uh, never disappointed to hear a strong estimated profit, and hope you like this version of it as well, uh, because it just uh, I, you know I think really speaks out and is fun to listen fun to listen to. Okay, back to football. Last week we matched up Michigan and Alabama for the national semifinal game which was played a week ago today on January 1st. And at the time we picked Michigan as the winner because the Grateful Dead had played more shows in Michigan by a large margin. I think it was something like 32 to five and Michigan blew them Alabama away in the number of dispensaries in the state. somewhere just South of a thousand to four medical dispensaries that weren't quite yet open. And whether you believe in that stuff or not, Michigan did win and, and held on with a big play at the end. Defense stood tall and strong and, and, and stuffed Jason Milrow on the final play. And we all celebrated and jumped up and down and had a great time. So, damn it, I'm going right back to this. If it worked for Mike Royko with the ex-Cub factor, uh, I say it's going to work for us with the Grateful Dead cannabis factor is what we'll call it. So let's take a look and see how the states of Michigan and Washington match up with one another under these uh, very, very select, uh, hand-picked, uh, almost cherry-picked criteria uh, that I'm using because for those of you listening to this uh, drop during the day today, uh, this big game is tonight. I want to say it's 7.30 Eastern time, I think, is the kickoff. I think it's on ESPN. Uh, like I say, I'll be in Atlanta sitting on a couch watching with my son and uh, his father-in-law and maybe my wife if she wants to sit down and watch it, certainly my daughter-in-law. And maybe even if we're lucky, my granddaughter for a few minutes, although the trade-off is when she's in the room, we can't yell very loudly, which is hard to do when you're watching a football game of that magnitude. Um, but nevertheless, and I digress, 
So Grateful Dead shows. Well, this one, this time things get a little bit closer for Michigan, which still clocks in at 32 Grateful Dead shows. That number wasn't going to change. And Washington is quite a jump up on the five that Alabama registered. Uh, The Grateful Dead uh, found themselves in the state of Washington playing concerts on 28 occasions. So an edge for Michigan, but a very narrow edge there. So now we have to turn to the other side of the, uh, the, the predictive equation and see how both states do with respect to the number of marijuana dispensaries. Now, working in Washington state's favor here is that it was uh, one of the first two states, along with Colorado, way back in 2014, to welcome in the concept of adult use, 21 or older, not a medical patient anymore. All you have to do is show an ID that you're 21 or older. Uh, it's, a, it's a model that's been adopted by over 30 states now. Uh, with a large number of others close behind and ready to dive into the pool with them. So, uh, you know, if nothing else, Washington gets uh, gets uh, extra bonus points for that. And you know, we will certainly recognize that anytime in any way, because uh, along with Colorado, they were willing to kind of take the plunge and, and see exactly where the federal government would go with it. And we are eternally grateful to them for doing so, because it allowed all of our other states to follow and uh, now we can smoke in Illinois and Missouri and New York, uh, so many other states, Nevada. Um, it, it's just a wonderful thing. And uh, those of us that enjoy marijuana and would prefer that over uh, other types of um, stimulants or um, uh, intoxicants, if you will, such as alcohol, uh, I'll take the marijuana all day long. And the more states that I'm allowed to do it in, the happier it makes me. And uh you know, look forward to obviously California and, and just all of the great places that are out there. Um, so, you know, Washington did us all a big favor by being willing to lead the charge and along with Colorado pushing the issue hard enough to get the Cole memorandum issued by Barack Obama's Justice Department, uh, William Cole, who was the assistant to Eric Holder at the time. And uh, the Cole memorandum is very famous. It basically, the federal government told the states, if you're going to have adult use and if you're going to make strict rules and robustly enforce them and uh, all this other stuff, then we will stay out and we will let you guys do business. And it was the Cole Memorandum that allowed uh, investors to feel confident enough to really start to pour money into the industry, knowing that absent certain uh, federal enforcement priorities, such as sales across state lines or diversion to the black market or sales to children or the use of weapons or violence in uh, in any of the transactions, uh, the feds were going to basically stay out of it, which meant that the risk of having uh, assets seized, real estate or cash or anything, uh, which which would affect uh, uh, an investment or certainly the collateral for that investment, uh, was no longer a serious concern. And that may have single-handedly, the Cole Memorandum, really been the driving force in getting the uh, adult use industry up and running. So Washington does get credit for that. Um, Michigan gets credit because they're the home of the Wolverines. Uh, they grow really, really great marijuana and they're very close to Illinois. So not too far, uh, for a quick trip over there from time to time, uh, where uh, we find that some products, uh, are just really good and maybe the best in the Midwest and certainly priced, uh, in, in a manner that is very fan friendly. Um, and if you're ever traveling through Michigan and looking, uh, for some cannabis uh, for your state, for your use while during your stay in the state, because again, you cannot take it across state lines. Um, there's plenty of dispensaries around. 
uh, from the west coast of the state all the way back east to Ann Arbor, then on to Detroit to the northern borders of Michigan where it meets up with uh, the Upper Peninsula. You can buy marijuana in the state now. And uh, Ann Arbor has always been a big, big home for the marijuana movement. John Sinclair movement after he was arrested uh, just outside of Ann Arbor for two joints and was sentenced to life imprisonment and then had it reduced to some large number of years. And there were big protests. And finally, uh, a huge protest that was held in Ann Arbor with John Lennon coming and appearing and a number of other famous rock performers and social activists of the time came and gave speeches. And ultimately, Mr. Sinclair was let out of prison and uh, hash bash in Ann Arbor, uh, which continues uh, on or around April 1st to this to this day and will be happening again this year, uh, is largely based upon a celebration of uh, Mr. Sinclair and the, the movement that helped secure his release from prison for the most ridiculous of reasons, simply having possession of two joints. Uh, you would never throw anybody in prison for that long for having possession of two beers, uh, which we can all agree are significantly more harmful to the body or even a bottle of alcohol. Uh, so uh, these are all important things, but let's get back to business here. Dispensaries, Michigan still has just south of 1,000 and around 990 total medical and adult combined. Washington clicks in at just about 700. So Michigan wins there again. But I note that on both of these uh, these points for making these determinations, the numbers are a lot closer and Washington does get special props. But I have to believe uh, if I'm going to stick with my system and why wouldn't I when I want to know with it, uh, that based on what we see here uh, on this information and these uh, uh, evaluations, that I'm going to look for a Michigan victory tonight, uh, but a much tougher battle. Uh, and rightfully so, Washington's quarterback, Michael Penix, is a strong arm. He may be one of the best passers, if not the best passer in college football, Jaden Davis at LSU notwithstanding. And um, hey, I'll be talking about it again next week, hopefully celebrating my Wolverines with a big national title championship or otherwise mourning the fact that they had gotten that far and weren't able to get over the top. But according to the Grateful Dead Cannabis Index, it points to them having a successful night. So go blue and we will certainly hope so. Uh, but either way, and this could not matter the least bit about what the uh, boys do on the football field, we're going to dive back into our show here uh, from lovely San Diego, uh, January 8th, 1978. And uh, we get into another part of the show uh, following Estimated, uh, where uh, the boys are still just really smoking, and they will be through the end of the show from this point on. Um, and they dive into a version of the other one, uh, which uh, a lot of the people who have comment on, commented on this show uh, indicate for them is the highlight and a number of people saying uh, it's one of the best other ones uh, that they had ever heard. And it is. It's, it's just absolutely tremendous. So let's go ahead and take a quick listen to this.
The other one is one of those songs that you you hear a couple of notes. It's all it takes. In fact, when you're a dead when, when you're a newbie deadhead and you're sitting there trying to learn the songs, the other one is a big favor for you because it has very very clear telltale sounds right at the very beginning. And when you hear that, uh, it just conjures up this imagery, um, you know, best stated by uh, Bob Weir in his portion of the suite. That's it for the other one, and you know, which was on the Anthem of the Sun album, uh, the second album they came out with, and is clearly an intentionally psychedelic ode to the Merry Pranksters uh, and all that entailed with Ken Kesey and the bus and further and uh, Oregon and the acid tests. And whether the singer was escaping through the lily fields or tripping through the lily fields or even skipping through the lily fields, all versions of the line sung by Weir at various points, according to several extremely careful listeners. The fact is that it was akin to Alice's rabbit hole because of where it led. The bus came by and I got on. That's when it all began. The line captures so much in so many different ways and so few words. It's a model of what poetry can do over time. And in a wide variety of circumstances, the line takes on a wide spectrum of association and meaning. The dead, of course, were literally on the bus, along with Cowboy Neal, uh, the driver, and Ken Kesey, and Ken Babs, and Mountain Girl, and many others whose names are legend among our tribe. What must it have been like? Surely worthy of a song or two, and we came up with a couple of winners in the other one in Cassidy. There's something really cartoonish about the scenes described in the lyrics. A Spanish lady hands the singer a rose, which then starts twirling around and explodes, kind of like Yosemite Sam left holding a lit firecracker leaving a smoking crater in his mind. The police arrest him for having a smile on his face despite the bad weather. Clearly, this kid is doing something illegal. Now, in Weir's interview with David Gans, along with Phil Lesh, cited in the complete annotated Grateful Dead lyrics, refers to this particular instant. And Gans says, now I remember a version from a little bit earlier, maybe late in 67, you had a different set of lyrics. The first verse is, the heat comes around and busted me. And then there was a second verse that was about the heat in the jail weren't very smart or something like that. And Weir says, yeah, that was after my little, and and Lesh says, water balloon episode? Weir says, well, I got him good. I was on the third floor of our place in the hate, and there was this cop who was illegally searching a car belonging to a friend of ours down on the street. The cops used to harass us every chance they got. They didn't care for the hippies back then. So I had a water balloon, and what was I going to do with this water balloon? Come on. Lesh leads him on. Just happened to have a water balloon? In his hand, ladies and gentlemen, Weir says, so I got him right square in the head, and Lesh says, a prettier shot you never saw. Weir continues, and he couldn't tell where it was coming from. But then I had to go and, and go downstairs, walk across the street, and just give him a goofy grin, and sort of rub it in a little bit. Gans, ah, smiling on a cloudy day, I understand. And Weir said, at that point, he decided to hell with due process of law. This kid's going to jail. And that is one of my all-time favorite Grateful Dead lines. And he came around and busted me for smiling on a cloudy day. Bob Weir uh, is nothing if not a, uh, a master 
a craftsman and a uh, agitator of uh, all levels of authority, even though he's now uh, ironically grown into a little bit of an authority figure himself, certainly in the, the music world. Um, that's what getting old and staying alive will do for you. Uh, so, you know, that's just kind of fun stuff that, uh, you know, this is where these lyrics come from on this tune and, and this is what was going on. Um, and so as to the debut, if we take, uh, Bob and Phil at their word, the first performance of the song is it now stands coincided with the night that Neil Cassidy died in the early morning hours of February 4th, 1968. And sure enough, there is a performance of the other one on February 3rd, 1968, whose verses correspond to the verses as we now all know them for the first time at the Crystal Ballroom in Portland, Oregon. Uh, the, the suite was a fixture in the repertoire from then on uh, with the other one itself performed at least 586 times that we know of. Uh, the only time, the only year in which it was not listed as being performed was 1975, the hiatus year. So uh, the other one itself, is, as we know it, uh, what we just listened to, is part of that suite of songs for That's It from the Other One, from Anthem of the Sun, made up of four sections, Cryptical Envelopment, Quad Labette for Tenderfeet, the faster we go, the rounder we get. That's the one that everybody knows as the other one. And we leave the castle. Like other tracks on the album, it's a combination of studio and live performances mixed together uh, to create the final psychedelic, uh, very trippy product. And it appears that way on the answer, Anthem of the Sun, bracketed uh, by Jerry's cryptical envelopment, which is the, the introduction singing part the other day we waited. But it stands alone most of the time. Uh, and, and cryptical was dropped. Uh, from 1973 uh, through 1984. It appeared for five performances in 1985, uh, which was the 20th anniversary period. Uh, it was broken out uh, following a lapse of 791 shows on June 16, 1985 at the Greek Theater in Berkeley. I was there and had the pleasure of hearing it. Um, they also played it uh, what turned out to be for the last time on uh, September 3rd, 1985 at the Starlight Theater in Kansas City, another show that I was lucky enough to be at. And it was just great stuff. But, you know, we don't spend enough time talking about this full suite of songs and what it really is. So I thought a quick breakdown is always helpful in this circumstance. So Cryptical Envelopment, the, the lead-in Jerry part, the other day we waited, the sky was dark and faded, uh, is one of the few Grateful Dead songs with the lyrics actually written by Garcia. Um, this one was performed from 1967 to 1971, when it was then dropped, we talked about coming back in 1985. Dead um, and Company has played it a few times, uh, but definitely uh, we all love it for the way Garcia played it. And if you listen to it on Anthem of the Sun, you do hear that part first, Jerry singing the, the cryptical envelopment introduction. Then we get Quad Labette for Tenderfeet, which uh, composing credit goes to Jerry, Billy, uh, Phil, uh, Pigpen, and Bobby. Uh, it's a short jam section linking cryptical envelopment and the faster we go, the rounder we get. Transitions between studio and live performances are very audible during this section. And then we get into the faster we go, the rounder we get. Uh, and that's one of the few Grateful Dead songs to have lyrics written by Weir, as we talked about. And with his, uh, the bus come by and I got all began with Cowboy Neil at the wheel. And then uh, the heat came around and busted me. Um, and uh, it's one of the most popular vehicles uh, for improvisation, uh, played uh, almost, uh, we said, 580 times or more, uh, some performances reaching over 30 minutes in length. The song's lyrics reference the influence of the Merrick Pranksters, and in particular, Neil Cassidy. Um, and then we all heard about the water balloon. Uh, and the section ends with a reprise, then going back into 
cryptical envelopment. And then there's finally We Leave the Castle, which was composed uh, by Tom Constantin, who was the keyboard player for the Dead for about a two-year period from uh, 68 and 69. And it's an avant-garde piece featuring prepared piano and some other studio trickery that they were getting into. So while We Leave the Castle portion was, uh, the song was never performed live by the band, the first three sections were all featured in concert to different extents. Cryptical was written and sung by Garcia, as we said, 67 to 71 and then 85. The faster we go, the rounder we get. Became one of the band's most frequently performed songs in concert, uh, simply denoted as the other one. And if we just look at that, the other one, we have almost uh, 580 times played. Again, the first one on October 31st, 67 at Winterland. The last one on July 8th, 1995 at their last show at Soldier Field in Chicago. Um, that's it for the other one. The full suite uh, was only played a handful of times, uh, mostly back in uh, uh, October, September, excuse me, September, October, and, and through the end of 1967. Uh, first played in October 22nd, 67 at Winterland, and then only a few more times after that. And then the cryptical, which we talked about, um, where Jerry kind of leads in, um, was first played uh, in 1967 on October 21st at Winterland in San Francisco, played for the last time on September 3rd, 95 at the Starlight Theater in Kansas City uh, for a total time, number of times of just under 70. So, you know, the other one is, is really a great tune. Uh, I like that people say it got the name of the other one because Alligator was the first original Grateful Dead tune that they were working on to put out on an album. And at the same time, they were working on this other song. And rather than actually fully naming the song at that time, they just kept referring to it as the other one. There was Alligator and then the other one. So this is the other one. And uh, uh, it, it's a great second set piece. Uh, and if you listen to the ones in the early 70s when Billy's doing all the drumming himself, there's usually a three or four or five minute drum solo uh, introduction to the song uh, where you can tell he's just pounding away. And then all of a sudden he picks up the familiar beat and really leads it in. And they all kind of come together with Phil giving us a big Phil bass bomb, hopefully. Uh, and Jerry and uh, and uh, Bobby really cranking into it. The keyboard players cranking into it. And it just picks up that familiar tune. And always a treat in concert. Always fun to hear. And, uh, you know, just the boys at their uh, creative and mind-bending best. Um, so now we're going to head into our uh, other fun portion of the show here, uh, where we talk about all things marijuana. And as we do, we're going to turn things over to Dan Humiston just for a minute so he can uh, play some new music to lead us in to this section of the show. What do you got today, Dan? Because I'm a picker, I'm a grinner, I'm a lover, and I'm a sinner. I play my music in the sun. I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker. Well, who doesn't know Steve Miller singing the Joker? And aren't we all midnight tokers, or at least we were when we first started out? Uh, that was a song that when we first used to listen to it in the early 70s, and we picked up on the lyrics. And we all, oh, midnight toker, he sang toker. We, we, we all kind of thought we knew what toker meant. And somehow or other along the way, we finally figured it out. And then we were all old enough to toke, and we did, and we'd play the song again, and we'd hear midnight toker, and we'd all laugh because we'd look at the clock, and it would be 12 or 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning or whatever crazy time us college kids stayed up until back in the day. Um, and so we were Midnight Token. So uh, Steve Miller's song is a great one to play leading into uh, Cannabis News. So 
Thank you very much, Dan. As always, you've outdone yourself. Um, it's time for another study. And whenever we do studies on this show, we know they're usually going to work out in ways we like. And this one is no different. <laughs> a new study of 1,886 cancer survivors. And let me just give a shout out to MJ uh, Marijuana Moment uh, for uh, this news story. They and MJ Biz are our favorites. And uh, we strongly uh, recommend that you keep them on your uh, uh, internet bar uh, for uh, popular websites to go to to find out what is going on in the world of cannabis on a regular basis. So uh, uh, Ben Adlin tells us that a new study of 1,886 cancer survivors found that nearly either half currently or previously used cannabis with most of those who used marijuana after their diagnoses reporting that it was to manage symptoms like sleep disturbances and pain. About a fifth of cancer survivors had found currently used cannabis for symptomatic relief while undergoing active cancer treatment. Published late last month in the Journal of Cancer Survivorship, the study says that the prevalence of cannabis use among cancer survivors was notable with most reporting a great to be a great degree of symptomatic improvement for the specified reasons for use. Of all participants, 17.4% were current cannabis users, 30.5% were former users, and 52.2% said that they'd never used marijuana. Of the 510 respondents, 27%, who used cannabis after their cancer diagnoses, 60% said they used it to manage sleep disturbances, followed by pain at 51%, stress management at 44%, uh, for nausea, 33%, and to help with mood disorder or depression at 32%. A majority of the patients said the use of marijuana was effective at treating symptoms. Among those using to treat nausea, for example, 73.6% said it was effective to a great extent, with another 24.4% saying it was somewhat effective. Only 1.9% said it had very little efficacy, and virtually no one said uh, that it was not at all effective. Similar findings occurred around depressions, appetite, pain, sleep stress, and coping with illness generally. In each instance, more than half of respondents said cannabis was helpful to a great extent, while between half and a quarter said it was somewhat effective. Small factions at most around 5% reported very little benefit or none at all. In terms of treating cancer itself, responses were only slightly less enthusiastic. Just under half, 47.7% called marijuana effective to a great extent. 34.5% said it was somewhat helpful, and 13.8% said it offered very little benefit, and just 4% said uh, it helped not at all. A four-author research team at the University of Texas's uh, uh, Medical Anderson Cancer Center also found that awareness of marijuana's potential health hazards was quite low among respondents, with only about 1 in 10% reporting awareness of such risks when were when when were or are you aware were you or are you aware of any potential health risks associated with cannabis marijuana during your cancer treatment only a few were aware of the health risks of cannabis use during cancer management the study says of the 167 survivors who reported awareness of potential health risks from cannabis use the awareness of ad- adverse health risks associated with cannabis use was low Suicidal thoughts, only about 5%. Intense nausea and vomiting, also low at 6%. Depression, 11%. Anxiety, 14%. Breathing problems, 30%. And interaction with cancer drugs, just under 35%. So, you know, it goes on and on. But in short, um, things like reported not only reduced pain, but clearer thinking. 
uh, reduced opioid prescribing for certain cancer patients because of the effectiveness of marijuana use. And many are uh, enthused by the fact that at least it might be rescheduled down to Schedule 3. And quite frankly, if you're using it for cancer, uh, Schedule 3 is not going to hurt you very much because you'll be able to easily get prescriptions from doctors. And whether you have to go to a pharmacist or not, uh, you will qualify and you should be able to get it. Uh, whereas the rest of us aren't big fans of Schedule 3 because it still makes life difficult for us and for those who choose to sell it to us. But nevertheless, another study that spits in the face of the 29 or 32 former U.S. attorney generals who wrote their bullshit letter a couple of weeks ago, we talked about it on the show, uh, to the DEA and Health and Human Services and all of them saying, we pray and hope that you will not act on this recommendation to reduce it to Schedule 3 because it remains true today that there is no known effective uh, medical use or medical efficacy for marijuana. Well, for God's sakes, man, are you reading these articles? Are you reading this article with all of these people who are cancer survivors? Is there anyone out there who doesn't have sympathy for a cancer survivor? So we're going to say to cancer survivors, screw you. We're going to play this game that we've always played and pretend that marijuana is something that it's not for all of the bullshit reasons that we've always done in the past. And if it, if it hurts you or bothers you, well, that's just too bad. No, please, can we just once and for all, we ask this every time, uh, you know, is there a way to do this? Is there a way to not have to pretend that marijuana is something that has no value, no medical efficacy, when study after study after study points out the efficacies, helping people through the symptoms of cancer. And although I don't know of any American medical groups that recognize it yet, uh, there are others around the world that see uh, cannabis use as a possible act actual treatment for cancer, not just treating the symptoms, helping shrink tumors and helping with certain types of skin tumors and uh, various things like that. And we've talked about Raphael Meshulam and all the work that he's done in this area. Um, you know, there's just not enough corroborating medical studies done by uh, doctors in the United States who can't do it because it's Schedule 1, so we can't get the evidence that we need to get it off of Schedule 1. It's just a big clusterfuck, and we know it, they know it, and little by little, we'll chip away at it, and little by little, that will show, you know, why they're wrong. And this kind of takes us into our second story, this one from MJ Biz again, so thanks to both news outlets for for helping us out here. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration is currently conducting its review of an earlier recommendation that the agency reschedule marijuana, a DEA official recently told a federal lawmaker. The potential rescheduling of marijuana started with President Biden's October uh, 2022 executive order that the federal cabinet level agencies re-examine the drug status, status under U.S. law. Biden's edict led to an August 29th of this year of 2023 recommendation by the Department of Health and Human Services that the DEA should move marijuana from its current status in Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 of the Controlled Substances Act, something that we've called out as bullshit and said it should just be taken off the schedule altogether. But let's st stick to this story here for a minute. Such a move would unlock significant federal tax reform for beleaguered legal cannabis businesses by uh, taking 280E out of the picture, Section 280E, and would also likely advance other federal marijuana reform efforts. But before anything of that, any of that can happen, the DEA must propose a change to federal law after due consideration. And what consideration is ongoing? Michael Miller, the DEA's head liaison to Congress, wrote in December 19th letter to U.S. Rep. Earl Blumenauer. The DEA has the final authority to schedule, reschedule, or deschedule a drug under the Controlled Substances Act after considering 
the relevant statutory and regulatory criteria and health and human services scientific and medical evaluation, Miller wrote in a three-paragraph letter. DEA is now conducting its review, he added in the letter, which was first reported by Punchbowl News. It's unclear when the DEA's review will be completed. Miller did not offer a timeline in his letter. A request by a coalition of Democratic governors urging the Biden administration to reschedule marijuana before the end of the previous year, before the end of 2023, has now already come and gone. But it seems rescheduling is a question of when, not if, based on indicators such as Congressional Research Service analysis showing it's unlikely the DEA will contradict uh, Health and Human Services recommendation. Meanwhile, uh, Blumenauer, a Democrat from Oregon, wrote in a Wednesday memo that advancing marijuana policy reform would boost Biden's re-election hopes this year, which is true. With election season nearly upon us and the Biden-Harris administration completing its formal review of the scheduling of marijuana, President Biden should keep in mind that no one has been penalized by voters for their embrace of cannabis reform. Uh, Blumenauer noted that who co-chairs the House's Congressional Cannabis Caucus. A longtime cannabis advocate, Blumenauer has said he will retire when his congressional term ends a year from now, uh, January 3rd of 2024. And certainly those of us in the marijuana industry uh, will miss Earl Blumenauer and uh, everything that he uh, brought to the table as well. So, you know, there we go. We're, we're talking about removing from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. Uh, we, you know, we're still looking to see what kind of medical benefits we have. Nobody's reading these articles. Nobody's really paying attention to any of this stuff. And that's very unfortunate because the bottom line is that there's so much gathering evidence out there right now that supports everything we've all thought and felt and known, just innately known for years. Those of us that have smoked it on any kind of a regular basis, you know, for uh, anywhere, you know, from one year to 50 years or 70 years. I don't know how old people are who have been smoking, uh, you know, their whole lives. But where is the harm? Where is the danger? We just don't see it on any kind of a regular basis such that it's picked up and reported or, you know, we don't get warnings from the Surgeon General. We don't get any of that with marijuana because it doesn't happen with marijuana, at least nothing that science has demonstrated to us yet, whereas we see over and over again all of the studies and research that are being done, if nothing else, clearly establishing the existence of marijuana's medical efficacy, which should be recognized by everyone and which should be reason enough to get it off of Schedule 1 and Schedule 2, making Schedule 3 really a no-brainer, but also a wolf's in sheep's clothing, as we've talked about, because it is not actually making it legal. It's not putting it on the same level as alcohol and nicotine and caffeine. And why not? It's less dangerous than them. It causes less missed work hours than them. We've known this since as early as the early 1980s. And yet we continue to propagate this lie on the federal level that somehow marijuana magically rises up and becomes worse than anything out there. It has to be on the same level as heroin, one level up from cocaine even. And, you know, this is, it's just intellectually insulting as we've all talked about. It's really not necessary. Um, and hopefully this will be the year where everybody pulls their head out of their ass and moves forward. But back to fun, Grateful Dead music here and uh, back to our show. And we're going to dive into truck and now listen for Phil.
we've talked about this song before because it is such a popular song. Uh, one of the few songs that that most non-deadheads who have any interest in contemporary uh, uh, modern music will know because it does was a tune that we got a for the Grateful Dead at least in the seventies and eighties a reasonable amount of FM airplay um, and uh, recognized by the Dead as a uh, one of their you know few pop singles if, uh, successes. Uh, obviously, until Touch of Grey came along and. Uh, brought the dead a whole new uh, level of fame and fortune that all the rest of us kind of wish they hadn't achieved, but uh, they did, and we made the best of it. Um, but you know, they they were they were writing this song under pressure uh, during the recording of American Beauty, uh, on which this album appeared in um, November of 1970. In January of 71, Truckin' was released as a single backed by Ripple. Go figure. That's got to be one of the best. A B side single releases in the history of, of popular music. You know, two great tunes, back to back when 45s really meant something. Um, with Hunter running back and forth with hastily written verses that somehow, despite the fact that they were purpose written on the spot, seemed to have some pretty good staying power. There are rumors that he originally wrote garlands of neon and flashing marquees out on Main Street as he had an intentionally hard to sing line just to enjoy watching Weir wrap his mouth around, trying to wrap his mouth around them, eventually relenting and substituting arrows of neon just to make it possible to sing. And anyone who's seen Bobby sing this song knows that on any given night, the odds of him screwing up the lyrics are just as good, if not better than the odds of him getting the whole thing straight. The music credit is shared by Jerry, Bobby, and Phil. Hunter gets credit for the lyrics and Hunter took the bare bones outline of some of the band's adventures and misadventures and fleshed them out with memorable features, including their trips around the country with specific references to places and occurrences. In the process, he came up with a chorus consisting of a couple of phrases that are now eternally in the cultural psyche. Sometimes the light's all shining on me. Other times I can barely see lately. It occurs to me what a long, strange trip it's been. At some point, Hunter was accused of using a cliche in that final phrase of the chorus. When something you make up becomes such a commonly used turn of a phrase that your own invention of it is accused of being cliche, that's a measurement of some pretty tremendous uh, wordsmithing success, I think we would all have to acknowledge. And one of the reasons why Hunter uh, achieved the level of of fame and and recognition that he did. Trucking first performed on October 18th, 1970 at the Fillmore West. The show opened with an acoustical set and Trucking was the first song. Uh, Other firsts that night included Ripple, Broke Down an Operator. Uh, you see a pattern there, right? The first song, Breakouts. Truckin' was uh, performed 532 times, placing it at number eight on the list of most played songs, with the final performance on July 6, 1995, at the Riverport Amphitheater in Maryland Heights, Missouri, just outside of St. Louis, a show I was also uh, very lucky to be at with my good buddy Mark and cool cousin Brent and the whole crowd, uh, just having a great, great time. And I hope you really enjoyed Phil singing on that version of uh, trucking because we've talked about how after 1973 Phil kind of stepped away from the mic they took away his stage mic and it wasn't really until um, uh, the uh, Madison Square Garden shows in early October uh, 83 that are part of the shows featured on the in and out of the garden box that the dead released a couple of years ago uh, the 83 shows also being famous for the return of St. Stephen after a five-year hiatus um, Truckin' is the song when I went to my very first concert with good buddy Mikey out in Ventura uh, on the beach. And um, I want to say they came out and opened the second set with it. Uh, Maybe they closed the first set with that. Sorry, I I don't have all my notes on that right in front of me. Embarrassing, I know, but I should know. Um, But the minute they started playing it, Mikey turned to me and said, they know you're here. 
because I walked in saying basically, you know, trucking and maybe friend of the devil. There, there weren't many other songs by the Grateful Dead that I knew. Um, and trucking was certainly one of them. And there it was. And, you know, it's kind of nice to be at a dead show with all this music just, you know, washing over you for the first time. And as great and magical as it is, it can be almost a little overwhelming. And it was nice just to have that brief little period where they're playing a song, uh, which you know, and, and, and can listen to and, and, and really jam on and understand and have a good time with. So, uh, that's all great stuff. Um, we're running out of time. We're going to, uh, part our ways here, uh, in just a moment. Um, uh, we're going to go out, um, for the end of the show with, uh, the final song played, uh, from our concert in San Diego, uh, a Johnny be good encore. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a second. Um, it's a, well, we're talking about it now. It's a song by American musician, Chuck Berry. It was written, sung by Berry in 1958. It was released as a single that year and it peaked at number two on the hot R and B sides chart and number eight on the pre hot 100 chart. The song remains a staple of early and later rock music. Johnny B. Good is considered one of the most recognizable songs in the history of popular music. Credited as the first rock and roll hit about rock and roll stardom. It has been covered by various other artists and has received several honors and accolades. These include being ranked 33 on Rolling Stone's 2021 version and seventh on the 2004 version of the 500 greatest songs of all time and included as one of the 27 songs on the Voyager Golden Record a collection of music, images, and sounds designed to serve as a record of humanity that was shot off into space. Um, the song was initially inspired by Johnny Johnson, the regular piano player in Barry's band, which he developed in St. Louis, but developed into a song mainly about Barry himself. Uh, Johnson played on many recordings by Barry, but for the chess recording session, Lafayette Leak played the piano, along, uh, accompanied by Willie Dixon on bass and Fred Bellow on drums. The session was produced by Leonard and uh, Phil Chess. The guitarist Keith Richards later suggested that the song's chords are more typical composition for, for piano rather than for guitar. Uh, perhaps you all remember it um, from uh, Michael J. Fox playing the song in Back to the Future, uh, getting uh, Marvin Berry, Chuck's cousin, on the phone and say, here's that new sound you were talking about, and we all chuckle. Uh, the Dead played it 283 times, almost always as an encore show closer. First played on September 7th, 69, at Family Dog on the Great Highway in San Francisco. Last played on April 5th, 95, uh, at Birmingham Jefferson Civic Center Coliseum in Birmingham, Alabama. And that kind of surprised me because uh, Johnny B. Good not played all the time, but some frequency. And that means it really didn't make it onto the final summer tour at all. And I hadn't really realized that. Uh, and that's really too bad. But it, it really is a great tune, very distinctive guitar solos a uh, perfect song for jerry on a night when he's not singing and all in all i have to say you know if you go out there and you're ready to see jerry and he doesn't sing all night but you get such great tunes bobby's really singing you got donna joining in phil popping in on trucking jerry just tearing it up onto the wolf guitar that he was playing that night you know at the end of the day uh maybe it just doesn't get any better than that and a lot of people talk about this song as being a fan favorite and i can see why and happy that i've turned myself onto it and hopefully uh, all of you will circle back at some time uh, and have an opportunity to listen to the entire song. Again, you can find it on archive.org or wherever you find your live music. And uh, really something that's a lot of fun to listen to. So uh, with that, I'm going to sign off, uh, getting ready here to uh, sit down and watch the Michigan-Washington uh, National Championship football game. For those of you who are watching and following the uh, Cannabis Grateful Dead Index and heard my numbers today, uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed that it's accurate for two weeks in a row and bring a uh, undisputed national championship finally uh, 
home to my Michigan Wolverines and nothing would make me happier. But if not, I'm sure we'll smoke a little cannabis and listen to some Grateful Dead and be happy nonetheless. So thank you again, everyone, for listening. Have a safe week. And as always, please use your cannabis responsibly. Thank you. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who have used cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host Corey Yelland is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.